Great singing. Amen. We have a great worship team here at the church. We're so thankful for them. Good to see you on this wonderful Easter Sunday morning. There are many sermons that will be preached around this country of ours as well as around the world this day. Many people will be going to the church somewhere because it's Easter and normally they think that's the thing you're supposed to do. But there's people around this world that will be sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, that he is alive and that he is well and that he is coming again just like he said he was. Amen? It's good to be back in the pulpit after a few weeks out. And uh, I want us to embrace our Lord this morning as to who he really is. To some, he's just a figment of one's imagination. But to us, he's the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died on that cross for our sins so that we could live, so that we could go to heaven when we die, so that we could be Christ-like examples while we're here on planet Earth, and that we can hold fast to his truth. His truth is eternal. Amen? So it's Easter, and we have celebrated this day for many years, and the message has not changed. Jesus is still the same. This should be the greatest day of all days, the Christian's greatest day, I guess I should say, knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ himself died on that cross for our sins. What a day that we, we might not have thought that much about it back then if we had been there. But yet the focus of a Christian's life should not be about self. And I know that our preoccupation should always be with Christ and his glory. Our energy should be spent on knowing him and accomplishing his mission. And it is, however, sometimes necessary to set aside time uh, devoted to self-examination. Remember that there is an unseen war that's raging for our heart's affection. The enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, watching for the most opportune time to catch us off guard. And despite our best efforts and intentions, none of us are perfect. I know that might be hard for some of you to believe, but none of us are perfect. And we all likely have sin, strongholds, idols in our lives that we may not even know exist. But thankfully, there is one who knows us better than we know ourselves. He sees what we cannot, that which is buried deep under layers and maybe even years of uh, tiny compromises. Moments of weaknesses and lies of the enemy that we have believed. But I refuse to give Satan more credit than he deserves. Amen. Amen. And I'm not one of those people who blames everything that goes wrong in my life on the devil. Sometimes it's my own fault. But however, he is real and he is crafty and he is busy. And it would be foolish to think that any of us are immune to his tactics. We should not fear him, but we should always be aware of him. There are some things to be aware of with self-contemplation, though. First, make sure that it's the Holy Spirit that's leading you. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 4, he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart, and test me, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist, he asked the Lord here to 
search his heart to test his motives as well as his thoughts. And he desires us to be led by God in all that we do. Not the ideas or counsel of man, and definitely not by our own feelings. So God's the only one who can judge our heart. He's the only one who can see what we cannot see as well as what we try to cover up. See, anything that God reveals will always align with his word. But we must be careful as well not to become stuck in our feelings. And while I do believe it is important to acknowledge our feelings to God, we need not stay there. Feelings should not lead us. They should not determine how we act. Ignore feelings can lead to a whole host of problems like bitterness, fear, as well as unforgiveness. But giving feelings too much attention can result in self-pity, deep depression, as well as shame. It takes wisdom and discernment that only God can give us if we're going to overcome these things and walk that fine line between these two extremes. So the bottom line is this. God wants, us, wants to be our close friend. He desires honesty from the deepest part of our soul. And when we trust him enough to lay ourselves bare before him, we'll always find grace and forgiveness. So with that, I want us to see Jesus this morning in the light of who he really is and that he was the suffering substitute. Father, I come before you with praise and thanksgiving this wonderful morning. And God so much transpired so many years ago on Golgotha's hill. And I know, Lord, the word says that you were marred or beaten more than any man. And they could not even recognize you because of how blooded you really were. But Lord, I'm so thankful and grateful that you did it for us. You stayed on that cross. You could have called 10,000 angels, but you died alone for each one of us. So I give you praise this morning. It's all about your blood and the cross of Calvary. So God, this morning, if there is one or two or three or however how many people in this room that hasn't embraced you as their personal Savior, not what they think they are, not what they've heard about you, but they have a personal relationship with you that they've invited you to come into their life to forgive them of their sins and to walk it out in however many days, months, or years we have left on this planet. So we give you the glory in Christ's holy name. Amen. I'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 53, the first or verse 4 through 11. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why did Jesus die? I mean, people have pondered that question for 2,000 years. And when we read the Gospels, the, the, the record looks something like this. He was a good man, a very good man, who went about doing good. Even his enemies testified to his integrity. You couldn't bribe him. He couldn't be pressured or threatened or intimidated. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He caused the blind to see. He made the lame to walk. And he preached the good news to the poor. 
The common people heard him gladly. So how did he end up dying on a Roman cross? What crime had he committed that would allow this seemingly miscarriage of justice? When Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, uh, the mega hit came out in 2004, the question hit the headlines, and for a brief moment in time, Jesus became fashionable again. Reporters, they were discussing the movie, and then they talked about what the death of Christ meant. Even the, the, the left-wing bunch even was talking about Christ and what this movie had done. But the most important question of the 21st century is why did Jesus Christ come to earth and then die? Let him crucify him on a cross. Now, not many people would, I suppose, pick why did Jesus die as the most important question of this century. We might ask, why is there so much suffering in our world? Will there ever be world peace? Or how can I really know God? But if you dig deeper then that question begins to be fleshed out. All the other great questions of our time lead us back to the ultimate questions about God and His purpose in the world. And we'll never understand God until we understand the cross. Now, I don't believe there's any other chapter that helps us more in that quest than this Isaiah 53. And this is the very heart of the gospel. And the heart of the heart comes in four, five, and six. And I don't believe there's any passage that clearly expresses it greater than the why behind the death of Christ. So as we begin to look at these verses, we must see how many times Isaiah uses our and we and us, our griefs, our sorrows, we esteemed him, our transgressions, our iniquities, his chastisement brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. We all have gone astray. We have turned the iniquities of us all. So nothing in that passage makes sense until you feel the weight of the truth. Jesus died for us. What he did, he did for us. And what he suffered was for us. So the pain and the brutality and the indignity of the cross, it was all for us. So from our perspective, we may say that Jesus was betrayed, tried, beaten, mocked, humiliated, crowned with thorns, convicted in a kangaroo court, falsely accused, beaten until his skin was shredded, forced to carry his own cross, and then publicly crucified, which was the most brutal form of execution in that day. So if we focus on those events, we may come to the conclusion that Jesus shouldn't have died, that it was all a big mistake, that somehow the powers of darkness finally triumphed over the light. The Bible never denies the moral wrong of those who put Jesus to death. In Acts 2.23, Peter says, This Jesus, you crucified, you killed him by the hands of lawless men. So it's perfectly proper for us to say that Jesus was murdered by his enemies and his blood is on their hands. But that's not the end of the story. And it's far from it. The Bible 
writers unite to declare that Jesus laid down his own life and that no one took it from him. He didn't die because he could not help it. He didn't suffer because he could not escape. All the soldiers of Pilate's army could not have taken him if he had not been willing to be taken. They could not have hurt a, a hair on his head if he had not given them or granted them permission. In John 10, 18, it reads, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. He said, I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to raise it up again. And that brings us to the heart of this Isaiah passage. And as we read these verses, may our hearts be warned by the thought that Jesus died on purpose and not by accident, so that sinners like you and me could be saved. Amen? You are in the we, and so am I. Isn't that amazing? You and I are in the us, because that's who we died for. And our Lord's suffering was not his fault, it was ours. So the more personally we read this message, the more the death of Christ will mean to us. Sometimes I wonder, how many, how many different ways can you preach Easter? But there's a lot of things, if we begin to dig and look, that we can flesh out and apply to our own hearts and our own lives. So the first thing he did, verse 4, he took our pain. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And when Isaiah speaks of what Christ has done for us, he doesn't start with our sin or with our guilt. That comes later. He begins instead with our infirmities. The text says that Christ has borne our griefs. It's a Hebrew word that means to lift up and carry away a heavy load. And it was used in Leviticus 16 for the scapegoat who carried away the sins of that nation. And that's the idea right here. Jesus came to lift the heavy burdens of sadness that was brought about by our sin and the pain of living in a sinful world. A famous gospel song starts like this. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. We have many griefs because we live in a fallen world. We have many sorrows because we ourselves are fallen people. We need someone who can bear our grief when the burden is too heavy for us. And that would be Jesus. He took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrow. That must include the division in your family, the loss of your job, the death of your husband or your wife, the pain of your past. See, in Christ, we, do not, we don't have some faraway God, but in him we find a God who has drawn near to us, who came to us, who entered our world, who became one of us, that he might carry our sorrows for us. Your pain will not have the last word. Your sorrows will not last forever. Jesus has borne them, and Jesus has carried them. I read a story last week about a woman in, back in communist Russia, in, before the Iron Curtain came down. In, in, in one of her... Uh, periodic efforts to eradicate religious belief, the communists did, the KGB agents, they went to the nation's churches on Sunday mornings. 
And one agent was struck by the deep devotion of a particular elderly woman who was kissing the feet of a life saw his carving of Jesus on the cross. And Bakushka, grandmother, he said, are you also prepared to kiss the feet of the beloved general secretary of our communist party? Why, of course, she replied, but only if you crucify him first. <laughs> See, when we consider Jesus, what he suffered, what he endured, what he joyfully gave up, then we are compelled to share in his sufferings, even if it's just in some small way. There's no room for self at the foot of the cross. There's no place for self-pity in front of that empty tomb. Jesus drew his last breath, loving and giving to others. He gave his mother to his beloved friend. He gave his forgiveness to his enemies. He gave pardon to that thief. He gave up his spirit for our salvation. See, no other God has wounds. No other Savior was beaten like Jesus. No other Lord was ready to give his all that you and I might live and be forgiven of our sin. Where else can you find a Savior like this? Nowhere. He took our punishment. Verse 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He was pierced as with a spear. He was crushed. He was broken, beaten, pulverized. Upon him was the chastisement. He was beaten with a whip. By his wounds, I mean they cut his body. He was bruised. He was blooded. His skin was filleted. And it's not always understood that our Lord died in terrible pain. If you run the clock back from 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the moment of his death, to about 1 o'clock in the morning, and if you could review what happened to Jesus as he moves through those hours, and what you discover is that our Lord had just been through 14 hours of torture. He was arrested in the middle of the night. He was slapped. He was pushed around. He was mocked. He was slapped again. He was crowned with thorns that that went deep into his scalp. He was scourged with a large strap studded with bits of bone and stone and metal. His beard was ripped out. He was beaten again and again. He was forced to carry his own cross. Nails were driven through his hands and feet. They crucified him. But at, at, at this point, a strange question comes to mind. Was Jesus a failure? You can make a good case that the answer is yes. Just look at his life. He was born into an unimportant family in an unimportant village. He was ignored. He was taken for granted. He was laughed at. And when he speaks, the powers that be want nothing to do with him. He faces ridicule. He faces opposition. He faces misunderstanding. He did that all of his life. But in the end, he's crucified like a criminal. And his suffering in the last few hours, they're unspeakable. And when he dies, he appears to be yet another forgotten footnote in history. And working with the facts on one level, you can make the case that our Lord was a failure. But his death is not the end of the story. He did not fail in what he came to do. He, he, he perfectly fulfilled the Father's will. Look what we have in return. We have peace with God. That word means wholeness. That word means health, the absence of war. It means safety. In a messed up world like ours, filled with broken people and broken promises, through Christ we have peace that passes all understanding, human understanding. 
We are healed. We're healed from our guilt. We're healed from our hatred. We're healed from our doubt. We're healed from our shame. And through Christ, broken people are put back together again. Was Jesus a failure? Absolutely not. He took our sin. He bore our pain. Woo! And through his death on the cross, he healed us from the inside out so that you and I could become brand new creations in Christ Jesus. But now look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. And every, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Someone has said that Isaiah 53, 6 is the John 3, 16 of the Old Testament. I, I don't know about that, but it sounds good. Because this verse does make the way of salvation so clear that we cannot miss it. I mean, note that all in the, is, is the first and the last word of verse 6. We all have sinned. We all have gone astray. We all have missed the mark. We all have turned to our own way. We're all in the same boat, and the boat's going down. If God doesn't do something, we're all going to die. And at this point, we encounter the great, glorious news of the gospel, and that is God has done something. Amen. He could have looked at the mess we're in and said, hey, they deserve it. They messed up. Let them face their consequences. Let them get themselves out of their own mess. But if God had said that, he would have been 100% justified because he was under no obligation to rescue us when we wandered astray. We said, leave me alone. God said, I can't do that. And the Lord has laid on him. That's Jesus who came from heaven on a divine rescue mission. God laid our sins on Jesus. That's the doctrine of substitution. That's the heart of the gospel. He took my place when he died. God laid my sins on him. So let's suppose that all of our sins have been written in one big massive book. And that book is heavy because it records every rotten thing you've ever said, every unkind word you've ever spoken, every mean thought, every lustful fantasy, every evil imagination and all your bad attitudes from the day of your birth till the day of your death. Now picture yourself trying to hold that massive book in your hand. Now picture Jesus standing next to you. He is holy. He is perfect. He is good. He is pure. He has no book in his hands because he never sinned. You want to be rid of the book, but you can't seem to find a place to put it down. What are you going to do? Now picture Christ on the cross with the weight of millions of books upon his bleeding back. He bears that crushing weight as long as he can, and then he dies. But if you look closely, you'll see that each book has the personal record of someone who lived on earth. And if you look closely, you can see your book. He took your sins the record of all your evil and all your failings and all your shortcomings. He took it all upon himself when he died on the cross. Truly, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Would you like to go to heaven? You can. Isaiah 53 contains the good news, all that we need. He was bruised for us. He was wounded for us. He was beaten, betrayed, mocked, scourged, crowned with thorns, crucified for us. Our sins drove Jesus to the cross but he did not go willingly. If our sins drove him there, 
It was his love for us that kept him there. If you want to go to heaven, pay attention to that verse 6. Remember that it all begins and ends with the word all. One man gave this testimony this way. He said, I stooped down low and went in at the first all. Then I stood up straight and walked out at the last all. The first all tells us that we're sinners. The last all tells us that Christ has paid the price for our sins. Go in at the first all and come out at the last all and you discover the way of salvation. When President Dwight Eisenhower was hospitalized, he was dying, Billy Graham went and paid him a visit. At one point, President Eisenhower said, can an old sinner like me ever go to heaven? Billy Graham assured him that even old sinners can go to heaven by trusting in Jesus. But there's good news for old sinners, young sinners, big sinners, small sinners, and everything in between. Jesus has paid the price in full so that you can go to heaven. It doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what you've done or how bad your record might be. If you know that you are a sinner, you can be saved. How can I be sure about that? Because Jesus was pierced for your transgressions and he was crushed for your iniquities. How do we receive his gift of salvation? Simply by asking for it. Do you know in your heart that you want Christ in your life? You may have him today. This is the wonder of the gospel. Don't, don't, don't say, I'll do my best and come to Christ later. That's the language of hell. A woman was witnessing to a man the other day, and she asked him if she could pray with him. And he said, sure. He's in kind of bad shape. And she said, do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? And do, do you think you go to heaven if you die? And not, not really a good answer. She said, I would like to pray this prayer, and I would like for you to follow along with me in it. And she went through the prayer, what he could do. But when she got to the part of, Jesus, I, I want you to forgive me of my sins, and I want to invite you into my heart, he didn't say nothing. He didn't really want to do that part. And he promised her, he said, I promise you. He said, I'll call a priest. And he already gave him just a few days left to live. Now, if the priest isn't born again, he ain't going to do a blessed thing for that man. Right? See how the devil tricks people all their life. Oh, you'll be all right in the end. Oh, everything's going to work out just fine. Who says so? I was raised in a Christian home. And it took me years before this hard head was opened up enough to receive Christ. Who says you're going to live to be an old man or a young man or a young woman? Who says you won't get killed going home today after church? The thing is, be ready. For in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man is going to come. If you want to be saved, remember these four words. Run to the cross. Run to the cross. Lay hold of Jesus Christ who loved you and died for you. Remember, it was the Lord that laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you believe that? I mean, if you have any stirring in your heart at all, any sense of your need, any desire to be saved by grace, 
that desire has been placed in your heart by God. Now the rest is up to you. Run to the cross where Jesus waits to meet you. Some time ago there was a billboard with a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. And underneath the picture were three words, it's your move. Jesus died on the cross, now it's your move. He rose from the dead, it's still your move. God has answered your deepest questions with the simplicity of the empty tomb. Stand with me. On this happy Easter morning, I declare to you that Jesus Christ is alive. Amen. Amen. This blood we were singing about. Will you give him your heart? Will you trust him as your Lord and Savior? It's your move. Would you like a fresh start with God? You can have it. I mean, how do you do it? It's as simple as ABC. Admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. 1 John 1, 8, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. B, believe that Jesus died for your sins. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And see, you must confess him as Lord of your life. And then Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, here's what happens. When Jesus comes into your life, you don't have to clean up your house first. That's right. He doesn't say, get your act together and then come to God. No, he says, let me into your life and I'll help you clean it up. I'll help you get it together. In fact, there are areas of your life you're never going to get together on your own. You've tried it and you've failed. You need God's power in your life and he says, just let me in. So it's our move. And you say, well, preacher, you're probably preaching to Christians this morning. I don't care if you do claim to be a Christian. We're all got problems. Starting with the preacher, right on down to the youngest convert. Right on down to the executive pastor. Now, he's probably the best one. But here, here's what I would not, I would not do my job as a pastor or a minister if I did not give you a chance to embrace this Jesus Christ. So I don't care how long you've been in church. I don't care if your mom was the general overseer or if she was Marietta Baker, the founder of a big organization. All I know is, if you have not embraced Jesus, accepted Him into your life, and asked Him to come in and you repent of your sins, listen, as bad and harsh as it might sound, you're going to split hell wide open. Because that don't do a thing. Who you know or how many times you've been to church. It's have you embraced Jesus. How do you know, preacher? Ask Tommy Fulmer there what it's about accepting Jesus. Ask Chris Holston what it's about, accepting Jesus. Ask some of these other people in here what it's about. You start out a drunk, an addict, whatever else you want to have it, and in an instant, Jesus comes in, forgives you of every sin you're ever committed, and you get up, go down a sinner, and get up a revived saint. Isn't that amazing? Now, It's, 
It's not saying that everything's going to be perfect. You're going to have to deal with some things. But you got a backup with you now, Jesus Christ. you got another backup, the Holy Spirit of the living God. And he'll guide us and direct us. So as Brother Brandon begins to play, it's your move. You don't have to leave here the same way you came in here. You can leave out of here knowing that your sins have been forgiven. Knowing that if you get killed on the causeway, you're going to go to heaven. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Hallelujah. Come. Let's pray. Let's seek the face of God. Our world is in chaos. Our country is in chaos. Let Jesus become the Lord of your life. Give it to Jesus and he'll change everything.